Thank you, Aaron. Well, good morning and a happy new year. The earth has made one more revolution around the sun. So here we are, 2022. We're all praying that it'll be better than 2021 and 2020. But we, we learned from 2021 that a new year doesn't necessarily make everything better. We are, however, starting a new series uh, for the new year. Don't worry, it won't last the whole year. It's just uh, for the next few months, but we'll be in the Psalms of Ascent. And so I invite you to turn in your Bibles now to Psalm 120, the first of 15 Psalms of Ascent. By the way, my name is James Walden. If we haven't met, uh, I'm one of the elders here at Riverside Community Church and a member of the Gills Creek Small Group. Um, and uh, if we haven't met, I hope to have an opportunity to connect uh, after the service with you. <clears throat> Psalm 120. So it's pretty easy to get there if you just pick the middle of your Bible, basically. Psalm 119, it's a legend, I suppose, but it sounds good enough, uh, is the center of our Bibles. So right after the lengthy Psalm 119 is Psalm 120. So if, if you found it there, you'll also see it on the screen, but I'd like to have it in front of us as we refer to it throughout. <clears throat> I'll begin. Psalm 120, a song of ascents. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, and what shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. This is the word of the Lord. The Psalms are poems, and as C.S. Lewis said, poems that are meant to be sung. This is the book of Psalms, really Israel's hymnal, their worship book. And it's more than just a book of songs, it's really a library of songs. You have your iTunes library, Israel had their Psalms library. It consisted of five books edited together. And the Psalms of Ascent are found kind of in the middle of book five in this music library. This library has not only individual songs, but it has song credits, musical cues, and liner notes. It's meant to be sung. God's people have always been a singing people. We sing our laments, and we sing our praises. We sing the blues, and we sing celebration. 
Martin Luther said that next to the word of God, music deserves the highest praise. So what is the Psalms but the word of God that's also music to be sung? The Psalms are God's word to us, but they're also man's word sung in praise of God. We don't have the sheet music for the Psalms, unfortunately. We don't know how the tune went, but we have the lyrics. These are words to be sung. They're words to live by, and more than that, words for us to live through. When you were a baby, your mom and dad had to teach you the words to express your inner life. You had to tr progress from mama to I want to I need, I'm hungry, I'm thirsty, I'm tired. And mom and dad gave you those words that you then imitated, that you then took into yourself and they became expressions of your own soul, the cry of your own heart. Just like when you first encounter a song that has since become one of your favorites, it's at first strange and foreign, but then it becomes like home to you, doesn't it? And the song becomes an expression of your own soul. You can't imagine expressing some of those feelings without these songs. This is why John Calvin, the reformer, referred to the book of Psalms as an anatomy of the soul, because every expression for every emotion that the soul feels is found in this book. And it not only shows us the expression of the psalmists, it is a grammar and a lexicon for our own souls to express our inner life with God. It becomes a means by which we learn the ABCs of life with ourselves, with others, and with God himself. If we will learn it, if we will memorize it, if we sing it. The Hebrew title for the book of Psalms is Book of Praises, which might seem like a misnomer because there is more complaints than praises in the Psalms more lament, more blues than songs of celebration. Yet these are all songs of God's kingdom. The Psalter is edited, and at the front of it is the gateway of the book of Psalms is Psalm 1, which is a call to submit our lives to God's rule, his law, the law of the kingdom. And then Psalm 2 is a call to submit our lives to his anointed one, God's king. It's an invitation to live life in the kingdom of God, thriving under his reign and kissing the sun. And God's kingdom coming is good news for us who live in this sad world. So these songs of mostly lament and complaint and longing, unfulfilled as of yet, longing, move toward praise. There is a progression in the book of Psalms. The laments tend to populate the first one, two, three books. But by the time you get to the end of book five of this library of music, 
it becomes one explosion of praise after the other until Psalm 150, the last psalm, which is a fireworks of praise. Let all that has breath praise the Lord. Not just collectively, but individually, these complaints and laments move from sorrow and longing themselves into praise. Eugene Peterson writes this, all prayer pursued far enough, and it's a painful path. Who wants to think that deeply? Who wants to feel that deeply? But all prayer pursued far enough becomes praise. Any prayer, no matter how desperate its origin, he writes, no matter how angry and fearful the experiences it traverses, ends up in praise. It does not always get there quickly or easily. The trip can take a lifetime. But the end is always praise. And within this edited book of music, this library of praise is the book of the Psalms of Ascent. The Psalms of Ascent are all, they all begin with the same title or superscription, Songs of Ascents, which most scholars agree refer to as a technical phrase for pilgrimage when Israel would leave exile or wherever they were scattered under heaven to go to Jerusalem for the three festivals in which they were to appear before God in the temple. Those festivals were the Feast of Passover in the spring, the Feast of Pentecost in early summer, and the Feast of Booths in the fall. And all three times they would, they would make that pilgrimage. They would ascend to Jerusalem to appear before God. And these songs were the songs they sang. They're appropriate. They're memorable. They're pithy. They're short. Three of them are only three verses long. The longest one is 18 verses. They're repetitive, so you could remember them. They have key words that are repeated that make for easy memorization and singing. These are songs for the road, songs for the journey. And they move from exile, which is where our psalmist finds himself this morning, to Jerusalem. In Psalm 122, Jerusalem is in the sights. And by the time you get to Psalm 134, the whole festal crowd is gathered at the temple courts. And they're not just worshiping God, they're calling the Levites and the servants of the house of God to worship with them. And so the psalm of ascents moves from this sort of dismal place of groaning and sadness and even deep frustration with the way things are to expectant worship. Wouldn't that be a good journey for us this year? Even this morning, to move from despairing weariness to a joy in the presence of God with his people. Would you pray with me as we take a look into this first psalm of ascent? Heavenly Father, you know how weak I am, how weak I feel. Lord, I know that I cannot do justice to your word, but I believe in the Holy Spirit. 
And I pray, Holy Spirit, you would speak your word powerfully to your people this morning. That we, maybe we came in here much like the psalmist, weary and frankly, we've had enough. Lord, I pray you would draw our hearts into your joyful presence this morning through the only one who can do that, the Holy Spirit that you've given us. We thank you for the gift that he is to us. And we pray he would fill this room this morning for our joy and your glory. Amen. <clears throat> the psalmist here, Psalm 120, begins with a distress call. In my distress, I called to the Lord. This is a familiar lament or thanksgiving song from lament to praise. And what was the content of that lament? Deliver me, verse 2, O Lord, from lying lips. Woe to me, verse 5, that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. This is his complaint. I am in a land of lies and warmongering, and I am not home. I'm in Meshek. I am Kedar. And the word that's used here is very noteworthy. Dwelling and in the tense of suggest, though this may be his permanent residence, this is not his home. This is not where he belongs. And this is the identity of God's people throughout history. In the New Testament, the Apostle Peter refers to Christians, most of them Gentiles, who grew up in the very cities they're currently living. And here's how he addresses these local natives to those who are elect exiles in the dispersion. He calls us who have made this radical transition from being at home in the world to becoming the children of God who are no longer at home. He calls us elect exiles. And so the psalmist's lament here is something every saint relates to. Eugene Peterson paraphrases it, uh, the verse this way, verse 5 this way, I live in the midst of hoodlums and wild savages. This world is not my home, and I want out. The title of the sermon, its functioning title, I don't think it's the actual title, was Get Me Out of Here. That is the overall lament the psalmist here is giving voice to. I am not home. And I want you all to know whether you're like me, you are a non-Southerner transplanted into Columbia, or you are a Columbia-born and bred individual, this is not your home. This is not where you belong. It is a strange place. It is a foreign place. And though we're called to love this city, it is not where we belong. It's not home. And yet the psalmist interestingly says, in his exile, I called to the Lord in my distress and he answered me. How? How has it been answered? Well, I think the answer is 
in the whole series of the Psalms of Ascent. I get to leave this place to go show up in God's presence. I can for at least a moment leave the tents of Kedar in the, in the land of Meshek, and I can go be with God's people in the presence of God. It reminds me of Psalm 73, where the psalmist is wrestling with profound doubt about God's goodness, about whether or not the Christian life, the life of faithfulness, is worth it at all. And then he says, then I went into the sanctuary of God. I was disoriented in the exiles, disoriented by evil and the triumph of evil. It's apparent triumph. I was overwhelmed by lies out there and in myself. And then I went into the house of God. And I was reoriented. I got perspective. I heard truth. I, my soul desperately needed to hear it. Yes, we live in exile as well, but we have a song in the night. When Isaiah the prophet describes the new heavens and the new earth, listen to how he describes it. It's on the screen here. He says, on that day, you shall have a song, and in the night, as in the night when a holy feast is kept, and gladness of heart, as when one sets out to the sound of the flute to go to the mountain of the Lord, to the rock of Israel. You will have the joy of expectantly meeting with God and his, with his people. And I want to remind us this morning that though we are gathered here, very much in Columbia, in a very particular place, with longitudinal and latitudinal coordinates, we are also gathered in heaven. We are in the presence of God. Listen to what the, the author of Hebrews says. You have come to Mount Zion this morning. You have come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to innumerable angels in festal gathering. You've come to the assembly, the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And to God, the judge of all and the spirits of the righteous made perfect, they are a party to our worship. We are a party to theirs. And you have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This is where we are this morning by virtue of the Holy Spirit who unites us to Christ in that heavenly assembly, we are now in heaven's courts. And when we worship, we worship with the saints who've gone before us. This is a reprieve in the land of exile, a much-needed place of reorientation and our disorientation. It's not a magic bullet. It's not a quick fix but it is good for our souls. The lament of the psalmist in verse 2 is that he lives in a crazy-making land of lies, a land submerged in deception. It's interesting that our culture has been called both by pundits on the left and the right a post-truth culture. That's a fancy way of saying 
lie. We live in a culture of lies, and we're surrounded by lies, and we feel it. We feel gaslit, don't we? Amen, Liam. (laughs) We understand the psalmist's long, drawn-out sigh here. We understand his lament. We live in a, a culture of deception and spin and marketing, and it's not just confusing and disorienting. It's deeply frustrating and even a little frightening to live in this culture. From the shock and the betrayal of January 6th and the lies that were told around that. It's just frustrating. And then to see the name of Jesus placarded in what happened, it makes my blood boil. The double standards that surround mask mandates for the elite are frustrating. The general confusion and contradiction surrounding COVID protocols, the apocalyptic conspiracy theories around the virus and the vaccine are so bewildering. The the overlooking and minimizing the damage our children are suffering in lockdown are deeply frustrating. We felt like we've been lied to over and over again. We feel like we're still being lied to. Deliver us, O Lord, from lying lips and deceitful tongues. Save us from the half-truths of politicians and experts, from religious gurus and the gimmicks of social media influencers. Rescue us from the lies of advertisers, from the spin of the media, whether CNN or Fox News, from the truthful hyperbole of presidents, from the diseased teachings of pastors that just reaffirm my diseased pride, from the therapeutic self-obsession in the self-help section. Ransom me from all the liars who try to sell me my best life now, but omit Jesus. And we haven't even mentioned being lied to by those closest to us being lied to by family members, by a spouse, by our children, by our parents, being lied to by our friends, by coworkers, by our fellow church members, when we've been slandered, when we've been assumed the worst of, when we've been misunderstood, misframed, misrepresented. It's deeply frustrating. It's deeply upsetting. These lies don't only disoint us, they oppress us. They suffocate our hearts. They lacerate our souls. Out here east of Eden, the lie is king. The truth seems so small, so puny, so powerless against the tide of lies. But the psalmist rehearses the certain end of every lie and those who tell them. Look what he says in verse 3 and 4. What shall be given to you? What what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? (laughs) 
a warrior's sharp arrows, and the glowing coals of the broom tree. Pierced with arrows, the broom tree was known for holding heat remarkably well, made for awesome coals and charcoal. It's burned real hot. The sharpest arrow, the hottest coals, are what the lying tongue deserves and what it will get. When we understand the psalmist's frustration, I believe with, with me, we all say, amen, amen. These lies will get their deserved end. There will be vindication for truth. The truth will win. And we're reminded of that as we enter into the sanctuary of God. In fact, the truth came into the world of lies 2,000 years ago. And already the truth pronounced the verdict on these lies. From John's gospel, John chapter 3 on the screen, this is what John says, this is the verdict or the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that they be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. You see what he's saying there. The light's come and it's exposed two things. Those who reject the light were exposed as those who embraced falsehood over truth. They were exposed in their rejection. And those who received the light were not revealed to be truth tellers. What does John say? They were revealed to be those who were liars that God worked within. They were the ones God brought to himself. When we come to the Lord, we reveal not our own goodness, but his goodness. That's what John's saying. So the light has declared a verdict that there is no one righteous, no, not one. The lies that I am not only resisting, but the lies I'm susceptible to believing. I was talking to my wife about this last night, and she talked about ego stories. Is that right? These ego stories are the, how we fill in the gaps. You ever do this at work? Like you pass somebody in the hallway, you say hi, and they look sort of a little angry. And you immediately assume what? Oh, they're mad at me. Truth be told, they were actually just thinking about their low bank account. <laughs> I had totally oblivious to you. But we immediately impute it to ourselves. Oh, well, it must be something I did. We send an email. We don't get an immediate response. What do we think? Oh, they, they, I must have upset them with the email. We send a text message and we read tone into it, right? We are susceptible. We don't just detest lies and resist them. We, are, we have been deeply shaped by them. We are quick and ready to believe them. We make up our own lies. We are a lie factory. It's been said that when there's a gap in information, us humans fill in that gap in the most pathological way imaginable, right? Well, she never called me back. That's much means she hates my guts. <laughs> or she just forgot, right? Like one of those two, but we go for the worst one every time. But that's those ego stories we tend to tell ourselves. But then there's the lies that I've told others. And even if it's not an overt lie, it's just sort of a tarnishing of others and a polishing of myself, sort of shading the truth a little bit to make myself look slightly better than I actually am. Then there's not just the lies I tell to others, there's the lies I tell myself. 
I don't know what your plans are for the New Year's. I'm not opposed to New Year's resolutions. I have my own sorts of New Year's resolutions. But so often, I think, behind uh, much of the Christian earnestness for New Year's resolutions to be in the Scriptures this year more frequently, to pray more deliberately throughout the day, or to read the Bible in a year, all wonderful things, practices the church has Uh, has undertaken for 2,000 years, these spiritual disciplines. These are good things for us to do. But so often behind that earnestness is a lie that we keep believing. And that lie is, I really have to show up to God in a certain way if I'm going to be accepted, if I'm going to be blessed, if I'm going to be loved. I really have to show up in a certain way. And that is a lie. And you know why we keep believing it? because it feels so true. Our hearts have been shaped by a culture of lies that tells us just that. Unless you show up the way I want, I will not bless you. I will not love you. I will not fill in the blank. And so because we've been shaped by that lie our whole lives, it feels true. And the gospel, the good news that because of Jesus' bloodshed on the cross, All of my sins have been forgotten. They are not in the path between me and God. He does not see my sins. He sees me in love and with arms open, welcomes me. Instead, I see a judge doing this over and over again. Why? Because my heart has been so profoundly shaped by lies. So what do I have to do? Well, I have to keep exposing my heart to truth. And I have to do that not alone, but with God's people. It's not enough just for me to read the truth over and over. I need y'all to tell me the truth. We need each other to tell each, each other the truth, to pray the truth over each other, to preach the truth to each other, to remind each other of the truth, that you're believing the lie again. Unless you show up this way, God won't accept you. You'll be a second-class citizen in the kingdom of God. None of this is true. You have to earn your your keep in God's house. It's not true. But we keep falling for it. So we have to keep presenting ourselves to the truth, keep uh, ourselves in a gospel community where we're hearing these truths, experiencing these truths. And as our hearts do experience that, they will become transformed. The truth of the gospel will start to feel more true. Is it shaped by that truth? Well, lastly, the psalmist complains about conflict. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. Now, Meshech was and Kedar are not geographically anywhere near each other. These are two far-flung locations. One is way north in southern Russia, Meshek, and the other is way southeast of Israel in the Arabian Peninsula. But they were known as sort of wild places and dangerous people. That's why Eugene Peterson paraphrased it as hoodlums and wild savages. It's not an actual geographical, like, there's no way one person could dwell in both places. It's kind of like us saying, I dwell in Siberia and Timbuktu. I live in the wilderness. I live in the middle of nowhere. I live in the wild west where it's crazy, where the lie is king. 
And everyone is at war with everyone. It's constant conflict. The left bitterly hates the right, and the right, if possible, hates them even more. It's constant. There's no peace. There's no nuance. There's no attempt to understand each other. Just war of all against all. Can you relate to the psalmist? The frustra- it's not just the frustrations of our current political era with this deep, deep, cold polarizations. But personally, I mean, are you currently carrying this frustration of trying to be at peace, but the other person is not having it? They're just at war. You extend the olive branch and they swipe it out of your hand and reach for the sword. This is a really frustrating experience, and it's a common one of the saints to be for peace. But those that you seek to reconcile with have, will have nothing of it. You're not alone. This is the experience of the saints. It is the experience of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was God in the flesh, coming as a peacemaker among warmongers. Jesus came and offered peace, but was rejected time and time again. One of the few times we see Jesus weeping, he weeps multiple times in the Gospels. One of the times we see him weeping is as he stands looking at Jerusalem. He says, so many times I would have gathered you like a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you would not have it. And that broke his heart. You wouldn't have it. I wanted peace, but you were for war. I offered the olive branch and you handed me a reed to beat my back with. He laid down his crown and was given a bow of thorns. He took on the humble posture and his humiliation toward us, and we only furthered his humiliation by stripping him naked and nailing him to a tree. He was for peace. We were for war. And yet, ironically, through this self-sacrifice to Rome's war machine, its systematic terrorism, in Israel's collusion with worldly powers, God reconciled himself with sinners. In the very act wherein Jesus' peace offering was met with hatred and murder, God made peace through that bloodshed. And now he makes peace with all of humanity in us, and through us. Look at what the psalm, what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. All this is from God, this ministry that Paul has, the ministry of the church, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Isn't that remarkable? That God moves toward the whole world, not in a hostility, but having, said it, having declared a peace treaty, having declared a ceasefire with the world. 
He no longer is holding their trespasses, our trespasses. Are we doing the same? Are we holding others' trespasses against them when we've been forgiven the trespasses that God has forgiven us? And are we moving toward peace with him and with others? Paul says, God, we are ambassadors for Christ, making his appeal, God's making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him, Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the wonderful exchange whereby God has made peace with us and with the world. And so, are we at peace with God? That is a remarkable blessing. Are you at peace with God? If everything else was stripped of us in this world, but we had peace with God, we'd be the most blessed people in the universe. Peace with God. That's ours. And it's so tremendous, it moves the apostle, it moves all of us toward making peace with others through Jesus Christ. Not a peace that winks at sin and ignores evil, but calls to repentance and quickly forgives sin. Are you a peacemaker? I know you're frustrated if you are. Be encouraged. Your efforts in the Lord are not in vain. It is a good work, and God is and will bless through it. Despite the world's terrible bent toward war, God's bent toward peace is stronger, and he will prevail. I'd like to end our time by praying this psalm. So with it open, I might sort of apply some of it into our modern terms, but look at Psalm 120, and let's read through it together uh, quietly. I'll read it out loud as a prayer to God. So would you bow your heads over your Bibles and read with me? In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. The lies seem overwhelming and drown us. Seems to be the very air we breathe. Oh, what shall be given to you? What more will be done to you, O deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows will pierce you. Glowing coals from the broom tree will burn. Woe to us! that we sojourn among the violent and we dwell among the deceivers. Too long have we had our dwelling among a world that hates peace. We're for peace. But when I speak, when they speak, when we speak, they are for war. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.